Most of you know this. We've been coming through this letter to the Colossians. And the place that we land today is chapter 2, verses 1 through 3. So let's read those together. And then we'll pray. Colossians chapter 2, verse 1. For I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you and for those at Laodicea and for all who have not seen me face to face, that their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. God, we want to take a moment now to be still, God, to meditate over your word. And so we come, Lord, as your people. And I pray, God, by your spirit that you would speak to us today. Lord, I just I affirm the prayer of my brother a moment ago that no, no strength of the flesh would enter into this place, God. God, no strength of the flesh in preaching, no strength of the flesh in hearing. But Lord, we depend on your spirit, God, that you by your spirit would allow me to speak your word in a way that glorifies you. And that you by your spirit, God, would allow the hearers to hear your word in a way that glorifies you, Lord, and moves us to walk with you. Help us this morning, God. We know that we are dependent upon you. And God, I praise you for this passage of scripture. Open our eyes to wondrous things in your law. In Jesus' name, amen. You know, when I first came to this uh, passage, I heard somebody give an analogy and I thought it was good. When I first came to this passage, uh, you know, sometimes coming to the scripture, you don't know exactly what to expect. And then in your first reading of it, you might think, okay, I see a few things there. And then you go to, you know, studying is like you go to open the closet door. And when you open the closet door, you open up to the Astrodome. You go, whoa, I didn't know all this was here. And I felt like that's what happened to me in this passage of Scripture. And so I encourage you, listen in, let's, let's seek out the treasures that are found here. Uh, let's grasp, starting off here, just the plain sense of what's here. Okay, so verse 1, let's just talk about plain sense. What, what do we see here? What we see in verse 1 is Paul having this inner struggle. He's having an inner struggle for the Colossian church, for the Laodicean church. And he says, for all who have not seen him face to face. In verse 2, we, we, we get an answer to the question, well, what's, what's your inner struggle all about, Paul? Uh, what, do you, what do you really want for the Colossian church? What is, it that you, what is it that you want so bad? And in verse 2, we get this description of Christian maturity. He tells them that your heart might be encouraged, that you might be knit together in love, and so on and so on there in verse 2. And in verse 3, what you see in verse 3 is Paul has this inner struggle that, that would... That they, that this people would increase in their knowledge of Christ. And then in verse 3, he's going to give them something about this Christ that he wants them to know. Namely, in whom are the treasures, all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. So Paul has a struggle for their maturity in Christ. And he knows that Christ is ultimately the place they need to go to grab that maturity. So let's, let's talk for just a second about the context that's found here. This passage, verse... Starting in verse 1 of chapter 2, it flows out of the previous paragraph, chapter 1, verse 24 through 29. So this passage, if you, if you read it, chapter 2, verse 1, it says, For, for I want you, for. So it's flowing out of the previous paragraph that's here. So what you see in chapter 1, that previous paragraph, verse 20 through 24 through 29, chapter 1, that's a description of Paul's ministry in general. He gives a description. This is what I do. This is my ministry in a general sense. And it's like he turns the corner and flowing out of that in chapter 2 verse 1. He says, this is my specific ministry towards you. So in chapter... So what we see, if you, if you compare what our passage from last week in chapter 1 and our passage from this week here in chapter 2. If you compare them, here's what you see. Last week we saw Paul's struggle in the ministry, right? Remember that? He says that, that I want to present everyone mature in Christ for this I told struggling, same word, struggling 
And then in chapter 2, he says, and I want you to know my struggle for you. So you got struggling in a general sense in chapter 1 last week. And you've got struggling for you, Colossian church, in a specific sense this week in the passage that we're in. Last week, we saw that his desire was that they would come to maturity. Chapter 1, verse 28, I, I want to present every man mature in Christ. But then we get into chapter 2, verse 2, we see a description of that maturity. This is what mature in Christ looks like in chapter 2, verse 2. Last week, we saw Jesus was the one that he proclaimed as the supreme subject. And this week we see in verse 3 a reason for that. Because in Him are found all the treasures of wisdom and of knowledge. And so I want to walk through this passage. As you kind of see the context here, Paul's moving from his general ministry into his specific ministry towards these people. I want to take it in three headings. First heading is this, Colossians chapter 2 verse 1. We see a holy anxiety. Second heading is Colossians 2 verse 2. We see a description of Christian maturity. In heading number three, in verse three, we see Christ, the source, the substance, the sum of all wisdom and knowledge. Or let me say it a little bit different way here, okay? Let me just kind of organize the passage a little bit different way, say it in a different sense. What we see here in verse one is, is, is this question. What does care for the church look like? And we see a holy anxiety here. In verse 1. Verse 2 is this question. What does growth in the church look like? And we get an answer to that in verse 2. And in verse 3, where does this growth ultimately come from? And we see that found in Christ in verse 3. Excuse me. So let's start with that first heading here. Yes, excuse me, I got a little out of order here. My fingers must be sticky. Alright, chapter 2, verse 1. Hold on a second, sorry guys. Okay, chapter 2, verse 1. We're going to see this holy anxiety. So you see it on your sheet right there, a holy anxiety. So I want to talk about what is it that Paul, what is it that Paul is experiencing right here in chapter 2, verse 1. And it says, I want you to know how great a what? A struggle that I have for you. I want you to know how great a struggle I have for you. Okay? The Greek word there is agon. It's the same word we looked at in verse 29 last week was agonizomai. It's where we get the English word agony from or agonizing. So what is Paul experiencing in chapter 2 verse 1? He's experiencing agon. He's experiencing agony. Okay, This is, this is a word. It's like an Olympic, an Olympic athlete's word. It's the, the agony of fighting in battle. It's the agony of wrestling on the mat. It's the pain that we're talking about. It's a holy a holy anxiety in verse 1. So, so think about this. Paul says to these people, I want you to know this agony I feel for you. Think about that. I want you to know this inner struggle. Some versions say a conflict. I want you to know the conflict, Paul says. The conflict that I feel for you. I want you to understand this inner conflict that is there. Paul was a man that had a burden. That's what I want us to see here. He had a burden on his soul. He was a man that had an agonizing weight that was upon him. He was experiencing a holy dissatisfaction. He, would, he had a holy disturbance in his soul. He felt a spiritual anguish within him that moved him to write to this Colossian church. Think about what he's feeling in these moments. One translation, one of the translations... Of this, of this verse, it says that Paul experienced a, an anxiety. An anxiety. So think about it like this. I want you to know, verse, verse 1, I want you to know how great an anxiety, how great an anxiety I have for you. Paul is experiencing a holy anxiety. Did you know that was possible? Did you know it's possible to experience 
a whole anxiety. Go to go to Second Corinthians, chapter eleven. Hold your place at Colossians. Go to Second Corinthians. <clears throat> Second Corinthians chapter eleven, verse twenty-eight. I want you to listen to this holy anxiety that we see in Paul, even in this verse. And apart from other things, there is the daily pressure on me of my anxiety for all the churches. Who is weak, and I'm not weak? Who is made to fail or to fall, and I'm not indignant? Do you see that? He says, there's a date, Paul says, there's this daily pressure on me. He calls it an anxiety that's on me. And what's it for? It's for the churches. It's for the church here. Man, somebody's weak. I feel that weakness. I enter into their weakness. Somebody's made to stumble. I feel indignant. I feel anger over there being led astray or they're being made to fall. I want you to think about this. Chapter 2, verse 1 of Colossians. I want you to know how great a struggle. He felt a holy anxiety within him over these people. So how, according to Colossians 2.1, how intense was his struggle? How intense was his holy anxiety? And it says right there in verse 1, I want you to know how great a struggle. How great, not a small one, but a great struggle. Not a small burden, but a heavy burden. Not just pain, but intense pain that he feels for these people. Intense agony for these people. And he says. Listen to it in verse 1. I want you to know this. Listen. I want you to know this burden that I feel. Why Paul? Why do you want them to know? I want you to know this. Because Paul's not just claiming to feel this burden for them. But it's genuine. And how do we know it's genuine? Because it's moving him to action. It moves him to pick up his pen and write to them. It moves him to pray for them. This holy anxiety that he feels for the Colossian church. He wants them to know that. Now for whom, according to verse 1, Colossians 2.1, for whom does Paul experience this inner struggle? And it says in verse 1, for you, that's the Colossian church. Number 2, it says for those at Laodicea. That's a, a, a sister church of, of the Colossian church that was nearby. And number three, he says, and all who have not seen me face to face. And all who have not seen me face to face. This means Paul had not, he had not, he had not personally met the Colossian church. He had not personally met these people to whom he's writing this letter. And yet he says, I have a burden for you. I have a burden for you. Now, there's some good insight we can get out of that. And the good insight that we can get out of that is the burden that, that, that Paul is, is going to call us to in this, as we follow in his example, is not just for our closest buddies. It's not just for our closest friends. But it's this mindset of, do you have a burden for lost souls that you don't know to come to Christ? That the hellbound people of this world would receive the gospel from your lips. Do you feel a burden about that? Or in the church of Jesus Christ. Imagine those people. Not just your closest buddies in the church. Paul had a burden for this church. But not just the closest buddies. But those that you those that you don't know that personally yet. Do you have a burden for them? Is there an overall mission of God that's driving you. To have a burden for the lost. And a burden for the church. That moves you to action towards those. I want to get to know the church of Jesus Christ. That I might help her and build her up and protect her. He felt a burden for those that he did not know. Now why does Paul experience this inner struggle? According to verse 1. Why does he experience this inner struggle? There's a positive and there's a negative answer to that. The positive answer is this. He wanted their maturity. He said in chapter 1 verse 28. We preach Christ. That we might present every man mature in Christ. To this I struggle. Chapter 2. I have a struggle for you. That you might be. Verse 2. And he gives this description of Christian maturity. So his struggle is that the church would come to maturity. It's what he wants. It's what he desires. That's the positive answer. The negative answer is this. He sees danger on the horizon. Paul sees danger on the horizon for the Colossian church. We see that in verse 4. I say this in order that no one may delude you with plausible arguments. 
Think about that. I'm saying these things, Colossian Church, so that no one deludes you. No one waters down, water downs, uh, uh, makes your faith watered down. So nobody does it. I, I don't want you to be deluded. I don't want you to be deceived. So I'm saying these things to you. You see, he feels a struggle for them. He sees danger on the horizon of false, false teachers that are going to come at them and try to lead them astray. He feels a holy anxiety that they would walk in maturity and that they would not be led astray by false teachers. Now, I want us to talk about that for a minute. There's something noble about a man that carries a burden through this life. There's something noble about a man who carries a holy and righteous anxiety through this life. The careless man, the one that has no cares, is carefree. He, he's irresponsible. It's worthless. He wastes his life in trivialities. Give me a man that has a burden that drives him into the secret place. Give me a man that has a burden, a holy anxiety that drives him to act on behalf of the lost world. Act on behalf of... Of the church of Jesus Christ. And there's no lack of evidence. That Paul was this sort of man. Paul's this sort of man. We see it in our passage here in verse 1. When he says. I have a great struggle for you. But I want to show you. This, this is not an isolated incident. Paul didn't just feel this for the Colossian church. But we see this all over the New Testament. That this is what he was like. Let me give you a few verses from scripture. That show you that. Acts 15. You don't have to flip there. Acts 15 verse 36. This is the springboard for Paul's second missionary journey as he goes out. In Acts 15, 36, you know what it was? You know what he said to Barnabas to kick off that second missionary journey? He said, Barnabas, let's go back to all those places where we preach the gospel and planted those churches. And let's see how they are doing. You feel the burden in that. Barnabas, I want to know how they're doing. I want to go check on them. I want to go build into them. I want to go strengthen them. Let's go. Let's shoot out on this second missionary journey to see how they're doing. So you see it in that verse of Scripture. Also, Romans chapter 1, verse 11. Listen, I long to see you, Roman church. I long to see you that I might impart to you some spiritual gift to strengthen you. I'm just longing to strengthen you. I've got a burden for you. I've got an inner conflict for you. A holy anxiety over you. The verse of Scripture we already mentioned, 2 Corinthians eleven twenty eight. It speaks about a daily pressure. Ever felt a daily pressure? A daily pressure in his anxiety over the churches. Who's not made to stumble and I don't burn with indignation? You feel that. This inner struggle. Galatians chapter 4 verse 19. My little children. For whom I am again. In the anguish. The anguish of childbirth. Until Christ is formed in you. Do you feel his burden in that? I've got the anguish of childbirth in me. Says Paul. For you guys. As you churches. I have this anguish within me. That Christ might be formed in you. It's a burden. This man carried a burden. First Thessalonians. You can flip to that one with me. First Thessalonians. I want, you, I want to pull out a phrase that I want you to think about. First Thessalonians chapter 3. Verse 1. First, Thess the First Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 1. Therefore, when we could bear it no longer. Now think about that phrase. Hold that in the back of your mind. He says, when we could bear it no longer. We couldn't take it anymore, he says. We were willing to be left behind at Athens alone and we sent Timothy, our brother, and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ to establish and exhort you in your faith. So here they are in one place. And he says, man, I can't take it anymore, Thessalonian church. You Thessalonian church, I can't take it anymore. I can't, I can't take it anymore. I've got to send Timothy to you to see how you're doing, to strengthen you and to establish you. Look at verse 5. For this reason, when I could bear it no longer, there's that phrase again, I could bear it no longer. I sent to learn about your faith for fear that somehow the tempter had tempted you and our labor would be in vain. So in that phrase, we could bear it no longer. Do you see the burden of Paul for these people? Do you see the holy anxiety of Paul for these people? I can't take it anymore. I got to know how you're doing. I got to get to you. I can't take it anymore. I got to send that text message. I got to call you. I got to get some time with you. I can't bear it any longer. How are you doing? He had a holy anxiety in his soul. 
for these people. And so as you flip back to Colossians chapter 2, I want you to think about that for you. Do you have that? Do you have personally? Let's turn this on us. What about you? Do you have holy anxiety? Do you carry a holy burden through this life? Do you have a, a burden for the unfinished task of taking the gospel to a hellbound world? Think about that hymn. Facing a task unfinished that drives us to our knees. A need that undiminished rebukes our sloth wings. But what about that holy burden? Not just for the lost, but for Grace Community Church. You who are members of Grace here. Think about that holy burden for that church. This church that drives you to pray for the church. That moves you to, to reach out to the church and build her up and protect her. Do you have that burden, that holy burden within you? Can you say with Paul, what comes upon me daily? That daily pressure, my deep anxiety, my anxiety for all the churches. Who's weak among Grace Community Church? And I'm not weak. Can you say that? Who's not made to stumble? And I don't burn with indignation. Do you have a holy anxiety within you? And I would say that this is almost lost in our culture. In our culture, we grasp for this soft culture. We grasp for anything that will ease the burden. Anything that will smooth out the path. Anything. Give me a, give me a pill. Give me, give me worldly therapy. Give me a misrepresentation of the sovereignty of God. Anything to keep me from having to bear a burden in this life. That's the culture that you live in. But just like Paul, you remember Paul invited Timothy. He said, Timothy... And does this sound loving to you? He said, Timothy, come share with me in the sufferings of Christ. That sound loving to you? He said, come share with me, Timothy, in the sufferings of Christ. And in the same way, I invite you to come in to a burden, to share the burden of Paul, to share the burden in reality, the burden of God, to enter into this struggle. I invite you into that. Where's the anguish today? I was thinking about this. Where, where are the weeping prophets like Jeremiah? Where are those who weep in anguish over souls, over the church? Where are those who weep in anguish? Leonard Ravenhill famously said this. has a little humor in it. The church was born in an upper room with a group of men agonizing. Now it lives in the supper room with a group of women organizing. Where are the Ezra's? Remember Ezra 9? Nehemiah chapter 1. Where are the Ezra's and the Nehemiah's that see the sin of the people and hit their face and fast and weep and mourn and cry out to God for the sake of these people? Where are they at today? Go read those chapters. Ezra 9, Nehemiah 1. Feel the burden that they feel as they hit their knees and pray for these people. Where, where are the David Brainerds? I went back and looked at the at David Brainerd's journal. David Brainerd was a missionary in the 1700s to the American Indians. And I went back and read some things in his journal because this was a burdened man. Sometimes in sinful ways, but oftentimes in very good ways. This is a, this is a, a piece of his journal. Listen, David Brainerd says, Towards night... Towards night, my burden respecting my work among the Indians began to increase much. And I was aggravated by hearing various things that looked very discouraging. In particular, that they intended to meet together the next day for an idolatrous feast and dance. Then I began to be in anguish. I thought I must in conscience go and endeavor to break them up. Do you see his burden? Do you see his anguish? So what does he do? I withdrew for prayer. I was in such anguish and pleaded with so much earnestness and importunity that when I rose from my knees, I felt extremely weak and overcome. I could scarcely walk straight. My joints were loose and sweat ran down my face and body and nature seemed as if it would dissolve. This is a man with a burden. It's a man with a holy anxiety. And I say, may we be like him. Does it seem strange to you when you read the book of James? Does it seem strange to you that James calls the people to weep and to turn their laughter into mourning? 
Does it seem strange to you that Paul the Apostle called the church to mourn in 1 Corinthians 5? He calls them to actually mourn. He's not calling them into a pseudo-Christian lightheartedness. He's calling them to carry a burden. He's calling them to enter into a struggle, to mourn over the sin that is in your midst. Paul had an agonizing burden for lost souls. And Paul had an agonizing burden for the church of Jesus Christ. And listen to me. Satan does not want you to have that. He does not want you to have that. He wants you to happily enjoy your TV while your family goes to hell. He wants you to be numb to these realities that your brothers and sisters in Christ are being drugged away from the cross of Jesus Christ. Or at least they're being tempted to do so. And he's just, he's just happy to, to give you a little more entertainment. A little more Facebook. A little more football. Numb you to the reality. He doesn't want you to carry this sort of burden. But for us, we're all invited by God's word, I believe, in imitation of Paul. We're invited into something far greater, far greater than more entertainment. We're invited into a burden, into a holy anxiety. I don't assume it'll be easy, but it'll be worth it. This has been my prayer for our church. God, my prayer has been God. Share your heart with us, Lord. Let us, let us have your heart. Break our hearts for what breaks yours, God. Let us, let, us, let us feel your burdens in these ways, God. That we might take those burdens, Psalm 55, 22, and cast them upon you. Sometimes we don't pray because we have no burden to cast upon Him. We don't feel those burdens. Those burdens of God. But I want to call us into that. So, let's move that next heading. What were Paul's inner struggles? What were Paul's inner struggles over the Colossian church about? In other words, what did he so desperately desire to see in them? And verse 2 tells us, we get a description of Christian maturity. He desired to see Christian maturity in them. Look at verse 2. This is what he wanted. That their hearts may be encouraged, being knit together in love, to reach all the riches of full assurance of understanding and the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. Now this, this description of Christian maturity is not meant to be laid out in a, in a five-part you know, lecture series of, of you know, here's the five-part lecture series of what Christian maturity is. This is just an outburst of Paul's desire for them. Verse 2 is just an outburst of it. Here it is. And at the same time, for, for us, for clarity's sake, for clarity's sake, we're going to look at this in, in five parts. Five parts of Christian maturity. Think of chapter 1, verse 28. I preach Christ that they might, that I might present everyone mature in Christ. That I might present everyone mature in Christ. And here in chapter 2, verse 2, we get five parts of what that maturity looks like. Let me just mention the five parts to you. Number one is the heart. Number two is love for the saints. Number three, increasing assurance. Number four, increasing understanding and knowledge. Number five, Christ is all. This is Christian maturity given to you in five parts from chapter two, verse two. Let me say it this way. Paul had an anxiety within him, a holy anxiety within him for the Colossian church to number one, have hearts encouraged to number two, have unifying love with one another. To number three, have the, the riches of full assurance. Number four, have increasing understanding, increasing knowledge. And number five, that Christ would be all in all to them. So let's look at each one of these. And as we do it, I want you to think about your own maturity in Christ. And I also want you to think about as you labor like Paul for other people's maturity. As you labor like chapter 1, verse 28, 29. As you toil and struggle that you might present every man mature in Christ. I want you to think about it from that angle as well. So your maturity and also how you labor for other people's maturity in Christ Jesus. So number one, you got the heart. It says it right there in verse 2. That their hearts may be encouraged. Their hearts may be encouraged. Christian maturity is deeper than just external things. It has to get down into the heart, right? It has to get down into the heart. If you look up the word heart in the Bible, you just do a word search. First three places where that word is found give you a good idea of what the heart is. 
The heart is the intentions. It's the, the inner thoughts. It's the place where emotions are. It's the inner person. So you've got to get past just the external into the internal things of the heart. If you're going to go after Christian maturity, think about it like this. It's possible for you to say all the right things externally and yet your heart be far from them, right? The scripture says they honor me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. Their heart is far from me. So it's possible to go through the emotions, the religious emotions, to, to check off the religious boxes. It's, it's possible to, to do all of that and yet your heart not be wrapped up in Christ, but your heart be wrapped up in other things. That's a possibility. And so he goes right for the heart right here. The pursuit of Christian maturity that ignores the heart is no maturity at all. A true pursuit of Christian maturity, it fights to guide the heart. You have to guide your heart, the scripture says. Move your heart into the love of God. But the heart is at the very bottom of this. And so what Paul says here is he wants their hearts to be encouraged. That your hearts might be encouraged. That's, that's the courage might be added to your heart. Courage might be added to your heart that you might persevere, that you might stand firm, that you might endure. I think of it like a, a Marine general going to his soldiers who are discouraged in the battle. And he begins to give them words and his aim is to revive their hearts of courage. I want your heart and I want it to be encouraged. Second part of the description here of Christian maturity is love for the saints. Look at it. It says being knit together in love, being knit together in love. Maturity does not draw you away from the church as if you're some kind of you become some kind of renegade, super spiritual elitist Christian. Maturity doesn't do that. Maturity draws you into the church because you love her and want to care for her. It draws you closer to the body of Christ for whom Jesus gave his life. True Christian maturity becomes less and less about self. Less and less about self. And as a Christian matures, he becomes more and more wrapped up in or, or knit together with, it says here, the body of Christ. Among the saints, the saints of Jesus Christ, that's where you learn. And sometimes it's hard lessons, right? But it's where you learn to be Christ-like in ways such as forgiveness and forbearance and long-suffering and mercy and patience. You can't do those things by yourself. It doesn't work in isolation. It doesn't work in American individualism. It doesn't work, right? Who are you going to be patient with? Yourself? That's easy, right? These things get worked on in your life as you're in the community of the saints. And so true Christian maturity... Being knit together in love. Number three, increasing assurance. We see that as a sign of true Christian maturity, increasing assurance. It says right here, to reach all the riches of full assurance. To reach all the riches, in verse two, to reach all the riches of full assurance. The word assurance there is a reference to faith. It's, it's confidence in God. It's rest in God and rest, resting in His Word, resting in His promises. So this means Christian maturity is not just about you knowing facts about God and facts about His Word, but that those glorious facts move you into a place of resting in Him and resting in His truth and resting in His promises. It's assurance in Him. It's confidence in Him. So it's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, but it's knowledge... Increasing in the faith is, is, or Christian maturity, knowledge that kills anxiety, right? Because you trust in God and you remember His promises. Not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, but knowledge that kills fear. Because your trust and confidence is in God and you fight to remember His word and His promises. It's not just knowledge for knowledge's sake, but it's knowledge that leads you to obedience because you trust in God and the one who gave you the command, no matter what command it might be, the one who gave you the command is good. It's assurance. It's more than just facts. The maturity that Paul desired to see in the Colossian church 
was that they would increase in assurance, full assurance in God and in His Word. And I love this phrase right here. It says, to reach all the riches of the full assurance. I love that. To reach all the riches. The riches. To reach all the... So, so this life of assurance in God, this life of looking to His Word and hoping in Him and trusting in His Word in such a way that it's killing anxiety and fears and these things, that kind of life, He says, it's riches, right? One version calls it wealth. You want to know how to truly be wealthy? It's not found in money. It's not found there. It's found in this full assurance in God, this full assurance in Christ Jesus and in His Word. And, and, and if you're in Christ, that is within your reach, right? Don't you love that phrase? To reach all the riches of the full assurance. Fourth description we see here, increasing understanding and knowledge. So, so it doesn't say of assurance, it says, it says that you might reach the riches of the full assurance, listen, of understanding and of the knowledge, of understanding and of the knowledge. So, so it's an increasing of understanding and knowledge is a part of Christian maturity. I said earlier that, that increasing in Christian maturity is not only about increasing in knowledge, but it surely is not less than that, right? It's not less than that. Knowledge is definitely involved. We already know from chapter 1 verse 9 of Colossians, when we saw Paul's prayer... For, for the Colossian church's sanctification, we already see the great importance of knowledge as it relates to your maturity. Look at verse 9. And so from the day we heard, we have not ceased to pray for you, asking that you might be what? Filled with all the knowledge of His will and all spiritual wisdom and understanding. So He's praying for their growth and He prays all oh, that you might be filled with the knowledge of His will. Wisdom, understanding. He goes on to say that you might increase in the knowledge of God in verse 10. So there's an importance that's laid here. And, so, and then we see it here in chapter 2. We see it again. What you do with understanding and knowledge, meaning what you do with the truth of God's Word, it directly affects your sanctification. It directly affects your maturity. I've already mentioned, you know, the... The importance of, of increasing faith, right? We're talking about increasing assurance and increasing knowledge, right? I've already mentioned the importance of increasing faith, but let me give you a warning. Let me go back and give you a warning on that. Beware of Disneyland faith. Do you know what Disneyland faith is? It's, it's so-called faith rooted in nothing. It's, you just got to believe. You just have to believe. Think about the, think about the Disneyland faith. You just got to believe. Just believe in yourself. Or believe it's all going to be fine. You just got to believe. It's rooted in absolutely nothing. But sure, true maturing faith must be rooted in the knowledge of God's Word. That you might reach all the riches of the full assurance. That's faith of understanding and of the knowledge. The deeper your roots go. In the knowledge and understanding of God's Word, the taller of a tree of faith you will be. Those things have to go together. Increasing understanding and knowledge. There's no way around it. John 17, 17. Sancti sanctify them by your truth. And your Word is truth. Last point here, number five on, on Christian maturity. Christ is all. Look at it. Last phrase in verse 2. The knowledge of God's mystery which is Christ. <clears throat> the knowledge of God's mystery, which is Christ. So it's, so it's not just a general understanding and knowledge that you need, but there's a main point. There's a supreme subject, and He is none other than Jesus Christ, the supreme subject of all subjects. The Mount Everest of knowledge is Jesus Christ our Lord, Jesus Christ our Savior. Immature Christians... Immature Christians may think, you know, I've, I, I now know, I've read, you know, through the Gospels, and now I know everything there is to know about Jesus. And he'll soon realize his foolishness, right? But as Christians, 
increased in, in maturity. That, that happens through them increasing in this faith, increasing in this knowledge, but not even just a general knowledge, but Christ Jesus the Savior. Oh, that we might see Him. Think about this verse. 2 Corinthians 3.18. 2 Corinthians 3.18. Think about it. It says, We are with unveiled face. Which in the context means now we can look at the Word of God because our eyes have been ripped open because Jesus has died for us. We can see now. We can see. And it says, We with unveiled face looking at the Word of God, beholding the glory of the Lord. So what are we seeing when we come to these Scriptures? We're beholding the glory of Christ. We're beholding the beauty of Christ are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to the next. You got to see Jesus. He's the supreme subject of all. It's been said that immature and imperfect knowledge of Jesus mixed with faith can bring us to heaven. But a maturing and increasing knowledge of Jesus will bring heaven to us. An increasing knowledge of Jesus. So we're talking about Jesus, the Christ. And that's going to move us right into our last heading here about Christ. But before we go there, let me mention one thing. I want to encourage you sometime on your own, sometime in a secret place, in a solitary place. I want to encourage you to take these, this verse 2, Colossians chapter 2, verse 2. And I want you to take these five points of five parts of Christian maturity. And I want you to walk into some self-examination in that. Examining yourself and seeing God and praying, God, help me to walk these things out for your glory. But let's move into that last heading. Chapter 2, verse 3, we're going to see Christ, the source, substance, and sum of all wisdom and knowledge. Verse 3. <clears throat> in whom, speaking about Christ, <clears throat> in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Now, there's two things that are said about Jesus in this passage. One is in what we just read, and another one is just before but two things are said about Jesus that we haven't mentioned yet. Okay, Number one, He's called God's mystery. You see that at the very end of verse 2. That's how we know who the in whom is. In whom. is talking about God's mystery, who is Christ. And the second thing we know about Jesus that we haven't mentioned is right there in verse 3. He's the one, he's the one in whom all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are hidden. He's that one. Okay, so let's talk about these two things about Christ. First off, God's mystery. God's mystery is Christ. God's mystery equals Christ, okay? Think about it. What does that mean? What does it mean that Christ is God's mystery? Here's what it doesn't mean. It doesn't mean that Christ is unknowable, but rather hidden in a sense and ready to be found. It does not mean when you hear mystery, it's not that you can't know him or that he's undefined in some sort of way or vague in some sort of way, but that he must be discovered. It's a mystery must be discovered. When you think mystery, don't think vague, unsolvable, unsolvable mystery, but rather think a treasure. A treasure that must be unearthed, that must be discovered. In fact, has, right? Chapter 1 says this mystery has been delivered to all the saints. Hidden for generations past, delivered to all the saints. He's a treasure to be discovered. Now, calling Christ God's mystery was very likely a, a, a strike against some of the false teaching that the Colossian church was hearing. You imagine the false teachers there in Colossus? And they're saying things like this. Hey, you really want to be mature? You really want to be spiritual? We got the secret. We got, we got God's mystery. And that's still happening today, right? People get led astray into false things. And part of that is because, oh, somebody's got the secret. Somebody's got the mystery. And, and Paul comes along and says, you want to grow in Christ? Christ is the mystery. Christ is the secret. He's all in all. All wisdom and knowledge is found hidden in Him. If you're lost here today, just think about God's mystery. If you're lost here today, if you're here and you're not in Christ, you're not a born again believer, Christ is still a hidden mystery to you. He's still a hidden mystery to you. In fact, one of the greatest tragedies of your lostness is that He is hidden to you. 
One of the greatest tragedies of your lostness is that you can't see the source of all beauty. You can't behold the glorious one who's more glorious than anything you've ever set your eyes on. You can't see him. You're blind to it. And part of that is an intellectual blindness. Like you just don't get who he is and get the gospel. But most of it is a spiritual blindness. In other words, the eyes of your heart, the eyes of your heart have yet to be enlightened that you might see. Over in uh, 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, it says, Satan has blinded the minds of the unbelievers lest they see the glory of Christ. Don't you realize that if you're here and you're lost today, you cannot see. You can't see the one who, who came on a rescue mission to save you from your sins. You can't see the one who went to the cross to die for you. You can't see the one before whom you're going to have to stand in judgment one day and you'll see him clearly then. So if you're lost here today, he's still a mystery to you. And I plead with you to come to him. Ask Him to open your eyes. But if you're in Christ and you're saved, guess what? The mystery has been unlocked for you. The door has been kicked open. You can know Christ and you can know His glory. You can, what's He like? What's He like? You can get in there and know who Jesus is and grow in your knowledge of Him and glory in His holy name. You get to do that now. He's called not only God's mystery, but also the one, look at it, verse 3, in whom, in whom are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Where do you go? When you search for, when you go searching for wisdom and knowledge, where do you go? Where do you go to get wisdom and knowledge? You don't find it outside of Jesus. According to this, you find it in Christ Jesus. That's the place that you find wisdom and knowledge. He's the source, the substance, the sum of all wisdom and knowledge. It's all from Him, through Him, and to Him. He is the origin of wisdom, and He is the one worthy of worship for every ounce of wisdom that you receive. All knowledge begins with Him and ends with Him. It's from Him and it's for Him. If it doesn't originate in Christ or does not lead to the glory of Christ, it's not wisdom. In fact, it's sin. In whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. This means He knows more than everybody else. Nobody perplexes Jesus. The, the, the mind with the highest intellect on the planet is a mere whisper when compared to the thunder of Jesus' intellect. In Him are found all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. The philosopher says, hey, hey, come over here and hear my wisdom. The worldly wise man says, hey, I got some wise counsel for you. But listen, it's not wise if it doesn't glorify Jesus and lead you to hell. That's not wise. Paul says, Paul says in this verse, you want wisdom? And he points you to Jesus Christ, the source of it all. Historical wisdom, scientific wisdom, wisdom in every single circumstance in life. All of it found in Christ Jesus. Amen. It says, in whom is hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. All of it. I read that and I thought, all of it? Paul, aren't you being a little extreme? And he didn't answer it. I thought he would say, yes, but it's true. All of it's found in him. So listen to me. Beware of Christless knowledge. It's a good thing to pursue wisdom and knowledge. It's a good thing. But there's a wrong way to do it. And it's Christless. Or even Christ sprinkled. Just a little of Jesus. That's the wisdom and knowledge that you don't want. If you pursue it that way, you will come up empty. Let me put this in a few categories. A few categories that might help us understand it a little bit more clearly. Okay, The claim of Colossians 2.3. Here's some categories. Number one. All wisdom and knowledge in the Bible. This is our category in the Bible. All wisdom and knowledge in the Bible is hidden in Christ. 
is hidden in Christ. Think about that. Understanding Christ and understanding His gospel, when you get that, it unlocks all of the divine wisdom that's found in the Scriptures. All of it. Let me give you an example. Go to John 5. Real quick, John chapter 5. All the wisdom and knowledge found in this book, hidden in Christ. John chapter 5, I'm going to read verse 39. Look at this. You search the Scriptures. He says in verse 39. Hey, these people he's talking to, guess what they do? They search the Scriptures. They search the Scriptures. But you know what he said about them in verse 38? Look at verse 38. And you do not have His Word abiding in you. What? Did Jesus just say to, to, to a person who searches the Scriptures, God's Word is not even in you? How could he say such a thing? Look at verse 39. You search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. And, and it is they that bear witness about me. Yet you refuse to come to me. What did they do? They went to the scriptures. But they missed the supreme subject of all subjects. They missed Christ. They had a crisis knowledge. A Christ sprinkled maybe knowledge. And because of that God says you know what? You don't have the word abiding in you at all. That Christ's wisdom is no wisdom at all. All wisdom and knowledge in the Bible is hidden in Christ. In fact, I love thinking about Luke 24 when he begins to unfold it to the apostles after his resurrection. Remember that? And he starts in Genesis and he walks all the way through the Old Testament. And he says he, he talks to them about everything in there. About what? About Christ. About himself. It's all unlocked in Christ. Second category that might be helpful. All wisdom and knowledge about God. Who He is. Who is God. All wisdom and knowledge about God is found hidden in Christ. You want to know God? You want to know God? Look to Christ. Gaze long and hard at the Son of God made flesh. That's how you know God. John Calvin said it like this. He said, All that think that they know anything of God apart from Christ... Contrive to themselves an idol in the place of God. And I say amen. All wisdom and knowledge about God, who He is and what He's like is found in Christ Jesus. We see that in John 1.18. No one has seen God at any time. No one has seen God at any time. The only God who is at the Father's side, He has made Him known. He has declared Him. Christ Jesus in the flesh has declared to us who God is. Think about it like this. Jesus is not just additional revelation of who God is. He's not the cherry on the top. He's not, here's all this revelation, and then He's the additional revelation. He is the full disclosure of God to us. The image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. He's the full disclosure of God. Think about it like this. You go camping, and it's nighttime, it's dark. Very dark outside, and your your campsite is lit up by candlelight. And you got one candle, gives you a little light, and you add an additional candle, and it gives more light. And you add an additional candle, put it over there, and it adds more light. And you add another candle, and it adds more light, and so on, right? Jesus is not like that. He's not like that. He is like the mighty sun rising in the morning, extinguishing all the need for candles. He is the full disclosure of God to us. Think about Hebrews chapter 2. Don't flip there. Listen to me. You check this out later. Think about Hebrews chapter 2. It's talking about how God speaks. How God has communicated with His people. And He gives you a distinction. He says, in times past, God has spoken to our fathers by the prophets. But now, see here's the distinction. Something big has happened. Now, He has spoken to us by His Son. Something has changed in Christ Jesus. He has spoken to us by His Son. And in fact, that phrase, by His Son, God has communicated to us by His Son. The, the, the His there is not even there. It's just by Son. And the by there should actually be in. In Son. In Son. But nobody translates it that way. You know why? Because it sounds funny. Listen to it. It says, God has spoken to us in Son. But if I said to you, if I said to you, that man has spoken to us in Latin, 
That'd make sense. That man has spoken to us in Chinese. That would make sense. Do you see what's happening there? It's as if God has communicated and the, the, the coming of Jesus is so powerful that God Almighty has changed His language and the way He communicates to us. He's the full disclosure of God. And the light said, Amen. <laughs> Third category, last category. All wisdom and knowledge. All wisdom and knowledge for salvation. All wisdom and knowledge for salvation is hidden in Christ. I want you... Actually, we're not going to flip there. There's a collision in, in, in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. Of the wisdom of the world that people go after. The wisdom that's outside of Christ that leads people to hell. And it's really no wisdom at all. And there's a collision between that and we preach Christ and Him crucified. The Greeks want wisdom, but we preach Christ and His foolishness to the world. And so there's this collision that all, all the wisdom, all the wisdom and knowledge for salvation is found as we gaze upon Christ, as we look at Him and think about Him and we meditate on Him. All you need to know and more to be saved. Here, here we are in our wretched condition, broken the commandments of God, deserve His wrath, deserve His judgment. That's the place we're in. But then all the wisdom and knowledge for salvation is found as we gaze at Christ. Think about Christ and His eternality. That He is the Son of God from before time began. He has no beginning, no end. He's Alpha and He's Omega. And then that eternal Christ, think about His incarnation. That He comes into the world as a man. He takes on flesh. God Almighty, Son of God eternal, takes on flesh. On a salvation mission to save us, to rescue us. He comes into the world. Now think about His death. He goes to the cross for us. God shows His love for us. And then while we were sinners, Christ Jesus died for us. He's wounded for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities at the cross. Christ suffered once for sinners. The just for the unjust that He might bring us to God. Think about His resurrection. He dies for you. Rises from the grave as the King of glory. The one to whom every knee will bow. Every tongue confess. Think about His second coming. He's coming again one day. And all those who come to Him in faith will be saved. But those who reject Him in this life will go to hell forever. Everything you need to know about salvation all knowledge and wisdom is found in Christ. And let me, at the end of this passage, let me just kind of leave you with, with a little takeaway here, okay? Here's a little takeaway. This passage has words like, if you look at it, riches. Think about these words. Riches. Mystery. Hidden. Treasures. What do those words invite you to do? Hidden. Mystery. Treasures. What do those words invite you to do? Seek Him. Search for Him. Search for Him. That's what it is inviting you to do. And I want to kind of leave you with that. I want to leave you with a plea to search for Christ Jesus. Think about it like this. You want to know Christ in such a way that it, that it moves you towards Christian maturity? You want to know Christ like that? Listen to me. Open your Bible. Dig in. See Christ there. Let Christ Jesus be on your meditation day in and Day out, all hours of the day. Do you have a burden? Do you have a burden to see other people come to maturity in Christ? Listen to me. Same answer. Open your Bible. Get them to open their Bible. Get them to see Christ and who He is. Get them to dig in there. Get them to love Him and obey Him. Move them in that direction. And in honor of that, I just want to close by reading Proverbs chapter 2, verse 1 through 6. Listen to the promise of those who open the Bible. Dig in. See Christ. Gain maturity. Chapter 2, verse 1. My son, if you receive my words and treasure up my commandments within you, making your ear attentive to wisdom and inclining your heart to understanding. Yes, if you call out for insight, raise your voice for understanding. If you seek it like silver, 
and search for it as for hidden treasures. Here's a sweet promise. Then you will understand the fear of the Lord and find the knowledge of God. For the Lord gives wisdom. From His mouth come knowledge and understanding. Let's pray. Father, thank You for Your Word. I pray, God, that just as we've already been praying, God, and as we've been talking about here, God, that You would share Your heart with us, Lord. That You would give us a burden, God. That You'd break our hearts for what breaks Yours, God. Please, grant us that. God, I pray that You would give us maturity in You. That You would give us hearts ablaze for You, Lord. That You would cause us to be knit together as a church in love. That You would increase our faith and confidence in You, God. Lord, that, that You would increase our knowledge and understanding of You. God, that we might know You, Lord Jesus. We want to know You. Protect us, Lord, from being led astray. Make, make Christ our all in this place. Because you are, Lord. We worship you, Lord, and pray that you would help us in Jesus' name. Amen.